Hey there. Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Clothes are supposed to be fun and everyone should be allowed to wear what makes them feel good. And there isn't a requirement or a weight limit to an outfit. Fashion is for everyone, not just supermodels. It's Wednesday, January 11th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a fashion experiment trying out Bella Hadid's looks on a plus-sized body. And another look at bike safety and whether claiming the lane is really the best move. But first, Utah's Great Salt Lake is less great than it used to be. In fact, a new report says it could dry up as little as five years from now. Ben Abbott is one of the lead authors of that report. He's an ecologist at Brigham Young University. And he tells Scott Tom water consumption needs to be cut in half to save North America's largest saltwater lake. We have seen dire reports about Great Salt Lake in the past. How is this new one different? You know, the the lake has been in decline for, for several decades. The reason why we released this report now is there's been a acceleration of the rate of decline over the past few years. And this is the story of a combination of unsustainable water use in the watershed, or just using more water than is available, mm-hmm. and, and combined with climate change. So we felt it was important. Thankfully, there's already a really good response from the state legislature and governor's office. We just feel that the timeline of that response really needs to be moved up. Yeah. The water level, I gather, has dropped 19 feet, and the lake itself has shrunk by around two-thirds since the 1980s. What does it look like now? And can you talk a little bit more about what's driving this crisis? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a punch to the gut when you see Great Salt Lake right now. It is more lake bed than water. And as you say, two-thirds of the surface area, three-quarters of the water has been lost. Wow. Um and the, the driver of this is, is quite well understood. Um, we have a lot of consumptive water use. This means water that we take out of the rivers or take out of the aquifers. About 80% of that water use is agricultural. We, have, we grow a lot of alfalfa and hay here in Utah. Currently, most of the irrigation in, in the Great Salt Lake watershed is flood irrigation. You know, a very old technique, just open the canal, uh, open the ditch and let it flood across the field, uh, which, which is not very efficient. Let's transition to a much more efficient distribution of water through sprinklers. And then all of that saved water could be given as a permanent water right to the lake. If this lake goes away in the next several years, and we have seen that elsewhere in the world, what happens, first of all, ecologically? The, uh, this looks a lot like ecological death uh, for the lake. And in fact, the, our, our, the director of the Utah Department of Natural Resources, he compared it to an environmental nuclear bomb that would go off if we don't have dramatic changes in our water management. Um, we're looking at collapse of the lake's food webs. There are two invertebrate species, brine flies and brine shrimp, that are a crucial collection of brine shrimp that then are used around the world for aquaculture. 
And then um, 10 million migratory birds depend on, on Great Salt Lake. And as we've lost other wetland habitat throughout the Western US, Great Salt Lake has become even more important. You know, it's this island of water and wetlands in the, the, the center of this vast sea of land. And what about the risk to human health? I gather there is toxic arsenic in the lake that could dry up into powder and get into people's lungs. You can have these enormous dust storms. And then there also are effects on the water supply because that dust is deposited on snowpack and that pollutes the snowpack and also creates early melt, right? It darkens the snow. And so it's actually threatening the, the water that we need to solve this problem. And there's a lot of snow this year, yeah? <laughs> we are sitting at the best snowpack in maybe 40 years. Um, this is really a huge opportunity to get an infusion of fresh water to the lake. That was actually one of our motivators as well um, for getting this report out right now. Because there's a, a bad scenario where all of that water is sucked up by thirsty farms and cities before it reaches the lake. We're calling on the governor's office to shepherd that water to make sure that it makes it from our mountaintops all the way down through the reservoirs and rivers so that it can help Great Salt Lake. Yeah. And Ben Abbott, that's my last question for you. As far as the consumption of this water, if most of it is for irrigation, farming groups are powerful political interests around the world, around the country, and reversing this you know, power government capture tends to go slowly, if at all. Yeah. You know, if... Um as dire as this situation is, I'm actually quite optimistic because there has been a real consensus and it's not um, separated by political divides. It's not separated by farmers versus cities. There is universal concern about protecting Great Salt Lake. And so I actually have a lot of hope for the future. The legislature passed some generational changes to water law this last um, legislative session bringing our demand to a sustainable level. We think on top of that, we need some emergency measures. One of the largest agricultural um, areas is, is Cache Valley in northern Utah. Their water district just came out and said, we don't want more dams and canals. Okay. They're saying they don't need it. They can reduce their water use and still have uh, thriving agriculture. That is Ben Abbott, ecologist at Brigham Young University. Ben, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me on, Scott. After the break, we've got a follow-up to a conversation we had earlier this week about bike safety and how much control cyclists really have over their own fates when there just isn't infrastructure there to protect them. Stick around. On Monday, we heard from bike safety expert John Schubert. John's a listener who reached out after Scott shared the story of his own bike accident. Scott got doored last year and broke his ribs. Thankfully, he's fully recovered. But to hopefully avoid another crash, Schubert advised Scott to claim the car lane and ride closer to the middle of the road, not all the way to the right. Being away from that curb is what gets you relief from all these hazards. And when you learn how easy it is, all of a sudden cycling is transformed for you. It becomes much less stressful. Turns out, 
John's comments stressed out cyclists with an opposing view. And we have one on the line. Armin Sami is the founder of Dashcam for Your Bike, a startup aiming to make streets safer. And he's a regular cyclist too. Armin, thank you for writing in. Glad to be here. So I want to just keep the focus on the bike commuter. John Schubert says, take the lane that cars are in, it's safer. And in his experience, he says, drivers accommodate the cyclists. What say you? That may be true for him and for very confident cyclists. If you can bike about the speed of traffic, maybe it's safe to be in traffic. But most cyclists prefer separation from vehicles. Most people are afraid to be biking next to cars. Yeah. Now, it's an imperfect world for a cyclist, right? I mean, there isn't always a dedicated bike lane. So when there is that reality, what does the cyclist do to stay safest? So often, if it's just a one-way road and there's, there's no bike lane, sometimes the safest thing is to take the lane, right? Uh, and the issue is not the advice that sometimes you need to take the lane. The issue is the, the concept of vehicular cycling, which is what John was advocating for, which is uh, a mindset that says that uh, bikes and vehicles should be treated the exact same. Bicyclists are operators of motor vehicles. And, and that's the mindset that I want to push against, right? Because most bicyclists don't want to be treated as a vehicle. They want separated, protected infrastructure. Now, when you're stuck in a case where there is no protected infrastructure, yeah, you have to make a judgment call every time. And, and that's, that's not fun, right? Either you're blocking a line of cars who are upset with you, or you might be riding in a debris-filled gutter. Uh, neither are great options. So do you have a suggestion for one of those places where there aren't great options? Because a lot of us find ourselves in that kind of a situation. I know a lot of cyclists who might say, you know what, I'm just going to avoid that road. It might take 20 more minutes, but I'm just going to do that. I mean, what are some options for the rest of us who have a street like that along our way? I, I don't think the options are as simple as, you know, what do you do that day, right? There, there's advocacy that can be done. And my recommendation is to to get in touch with your city and let them know about the dangers. And sometimes most cities have it as easy as just calling 311, saying, hey, I had a close call on this road, or hey, this bike lane is filled with debris, can you please come clean it up? And cities have a method of responding to that. Uh, and so we don't need to settle for the infrastructure we have. We can work to improve the infrastructure. That's Armin Sami, founder and CEO of Dashcam for Your Bike, talking about choices that we all have to make if we're cycling in cities. Armin, thanks for the time. You're welcome. Stay safe out there. Thank you. And we want to hear your thoughts. So send your own stories and suggestions in for cycling safety. Go to hereandnow.org. Coming up, fashion icons have style, but they also tend to have something else that makes it easier for their looks to catch on. Thin bodies. After the break, Robin Young talks to someone who challenges that idea. Let's allow the subject of our next conversation to introduce herself. So my name, my name is Bella Hadid. That's American supermodel Bella Hadid. She has a unique sense of style. You may know this. Her outfits go viral. When she wears something, it sells out. She's quirky. She's powerful. But some have wondered, 
Is this all happening because she's thin? To find out, Ayanna Ishmael, a reporter with Teen Vogue, dressed like Bella Hadid for a week to see if Hadid's style was plus-size friendly. And Ayanna joins us now. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Boy, you went viral. I mean, that's the one thing that did, you know, you definitely had that in common with Bella Hadid after you did this project. Uh, And we're going to say... We have all of these pictures at herenow.org so people can see your absolute side-by-side matchup. But first of all, you know, tell us what you were thinking going into this. Yeah, so I personally have always been obsessed with Bella Hadid's style because, quite frankly, like I said, it's so unique and quirky. I feel like she wears a lot of funky and interesting and vintage pieces that not a lot of people can wear. And also, of course, the fact that she's very thin. So sometimes a lot of her outfits, like the midriff, is an accessory to the outfit. Mm -hmm. And so her style was always something that interests me and also scared me because it's completely different from my own personal style. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking back to how when I first got interested into fashion magazines, we saw so many stories about like, I dressed like a celebrity for a week. Here's how it went. But I felt like we never really saw that in a plus size form. So I was like, let's try to do this. Yeah, well, and were you a little afraid because you mentioned the crop top, which I'm not going near one of those. I mean, how do you feel about your body? I think it's definitely something I'm still learning. I tell everyone, I feel like I'm so old, but I'm 24 and I'm still figuring out how to, you know, own my entire body. I've grown up plus size my entire life. And so it's something I've struggled with personally. But I think being a journalist and having this outlet, like being a fashion journalist specifically, I'm able to explore my style and explore how I see myself and how I see my body especially within clothes. And so I think it's really cool and exciting that I was able to do this story and also kind of help myself because I had a lot of people reach out and be like, I'm so excited to see a body like mine on Teen Vogue. Well, and we would say beautiful body like yours. I mean, <laughs> it. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, I mentioned those uh, ultra mini Ugg boots. And let's take a look. You chose six looks of Bella Adid's and and you took pictures of yourself, kind of even with the attitude she had right next to her. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is white shorts and a tan mini Ugg boots, you know, they're down to the ankle with a high platform. What did you wear? Because there's a jacket there as well. So what did you do? Yeah, so I chose to go for a little bit of a warmer vibe because it was 30 degrees when I wore, wore this outfit. But the jacket was something funny that I found. All of my coworkers, we love Euphoria. And so I thought it would be a cute um, play to use a Euphoria sweatshirt. The actual jacket is a Sherling Ugg sweater, too. (laughs) And then, of course, the infamous Ugg boots, they're sold out. But they said how Bella, like, single-handedly helped them sell out that entire shoe. And so I'm wearing a very similar outfit. My pants were the biggest difference. I chose something from Amazon, and they were more spandex. Bella's pants look more like underwear. We could not find anything remotely similar in, a, in my size. And so I think that they was the are, hardest part. I think they are white underpants. I really do. Yeah. I mean, but so there you are side by side. Uh, when you saw that picture, what do you think? I was honestly like, this is so iconic of her. I think sometimes clothes can be so fun and she chooses to wear things that feel so silly and kind of so out of place that I personally think it's a joy to see because honestly the day she did it it was the most like talked about thing on the internet when she put that outfit on and so I think she knows like just how to really put on clothes and make people say something about it. Well and then as we said the internet began talking about 
uh, Ayanna Ishmael <laughs> yeah. in her outfit. Um, you know, uh, that is, it's, I, I think it's hard for a lot of women to wear short, short shorts. Mm-hmm. I, I think you look so strong there. And you've got also the sunglasses that she has on. Is part of this not the clothes at all, but the fact that you're wearing the clothes and strutting them? Exactly. That's um, something I actually noted in my article. A lot of the times, it's not about what you're wearing. It's about how you feel and what you're wearing. And I think Bella, and obviously that was something I tried to portray when I recreated it, but it's the confidence. You could have on the craziest outfit, but if you're walking around believing that you are the best dressed person in the world, people are going to like second guess themselves and be like, well, I don't like this outfit, but I mean, maybe I don't know what I don't like. <laughs> so I think it's really important to have that confidence. Okay, well, talk talk about another look. Ooh, I definitely would have to say my personal favorite. It isn't, I didn't exactly replicate it how I wanted to, but I mentioned that finding baggy, baggy clothes, like oversized style clothes, the way Bella likes to wear was very difficult. But I believe it's look six, and that's the look that she's in all black. I obviously made it a different variation because I couldn't find a super oversized cardigan that was in black how she had it. I found a navy blue one from Madewell, and then I'm wearing an Eloqui black turtleneck and Eloqui black ripped jeans and some blue and black snakeskin snakeskin boots from Eloqui as well. And that, hands down, was one of my favorite looks to recreate and also wear. I ended up like wearing a variation of that same look like two days after that to work as well because it felt like not exactly what I would normally put on but it's so close to my style that I was excited to like explore it deeper so it was really cool to see that parts of her style could like now be something that I implement into my own well and overall did this experience this project did it change you I think it did because many people were so excited about it. Like I had people DMing me saying like, this is so important to them because they just never felt really seen in like fashion magazines. And so on the aspect of me just doing it, I would think it was just cool to like step out of my comfort zone with a lot of the outfits. I wouldn't norm wouldn't have normally worn them. And so to have that experience really did like kind of change me. And and what did, <laughs> and what did Bella Hadid say? She told me that she's obsessed and I absolutely tore, which is like, I killed it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that what you did might change something? I'm hoping it does. I'm hoping it creates more conversation and has people like more unafraid to do what they'd been told they couldn't do. Like there are a lot of girls commenting on the TikTok I made being like, I'm buying what she wore because, like, it looks so good on you. I feel like I can rock it now. And then also just, like, the negative side of it. There were people that were quote-tweeting my tweet and being like, it doesn't look good on you because you're larger. Like, that's okay. And no, that's not okay. I think clothes are supposed to be fun and everyone should be allowed to wear what makes them feel good. And there isn't a requirement or a weight limit to an outfit. And so I'm hoping there are a lot of or a lot more conversations and self-reflection about why you believe clothes should only fit on certain bodies. Yeah. Go back to the catalogs. It's in part because, or advertising, it's in part because we mm-hmm. don't see them. We don't see them on non-thin traditional model bodies. And once you do, suddenly something happens. It changes. Uh, Ayanna Ishmael, thank you so much. And again, all the pictures and her writing will be at herenow.org. Ayanna, thank you. Thank you. And while you're at hereatnow.org, 
We've got a follow-up to our story yesterday about the health risks of cooking with gas. It's a look at a hot alternative, electric induction stoves. It makes the atoms of the metal vibrate, and that makes the pan heat up. So instead of having a heat source like a flame or an electric coil, this actually makes the pan itself hot while not making the stove hot. You can hear that whole conversation and a lot more at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Hafsa Qureshi, and Gabrielle Healy. Our editors today are Todd Mont, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Theme music by me, Mike, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.